0: The 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. On today's episode, we have Dr. Roop Caravo, who is a director of the Environmental Energy Institute and co-director of the Turbulence and Energy Lab at the University of Windsor. His research activities focus on energy systems futures. Dr. Caravo serves on the editorial boards of Wind Engineering, Advances in Energy Research, in the International Journal of Sustainable Energy. He recently guest edited special editions of Energies in the Journal of Energy Storage. Professor Caravo was a recent recipient of the University Scholar Award and has acted as a research ambassador for the Council of Ontario Universities. Dr. Carvo is a founder of the Offshore Energy and Storage Society, OSES, and recently co-chaired OSES 2018 in Ningbo, China, In OSES 2019 in Brest, France. Professor Caraveau is chair of the IEEE Ocean Energy Technology Committee and was just named to Canada's Clean 50 2020 for his contributions to clean capitalism. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome back, Dave. I see we're missing your other half today.
1: Yeah, I think Johnny talked about if he could uh... Decide how the markets were going. He could be very wealthy. Maybe bet on how the energy markets are going. He made a lot of money. That's maybe where he's gone. Yeah, so he's hopefully he he comes that. back. Hopefully he comes back.
0: <laughs> well, today we're joined uh, by guest Dr. Roop Caravo, professor from University of Windsor. Hi, Dr. Caravo. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm terrific. If you could start it off the episode by please explaining your career background and your current role at the University of Windsor and what you do with the Environmental Energy Institute, EEI.
2: Sure, well, I will, I'll be brief about my career background. After my undergraduate degree, I worked in robotics and automation for three years and learned early that uh, traveling for business wasn't the same as traveling for, for pleasure. And I got a chance to work with with some people that had advanced degrees and I was really impressed with how it sort of changed their level of confidence and and I had an urge to learn more anyway. And so I went back to school and I did graduate work in, in Vortex Dynamics, which ultimately led me to everything that spins. I used to say, if it spins, I'm in. So that became wind turbines. So I got a post at the University of Windsor where I joined the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. And not long after that, I started working with a, an interesting and very wise fellow by the name of Dr. David Ting. And so I had been really working a lot in energy and David had been working a lot in turbulence. And David founded the Turbines and Energy Lab, which I co-direct with him in 2012. And so so the Turbines and Energy Lab has really been the engine of uh, a lot of what we've done at the university since then. Around 2017, I started seeing more and more opportunities coming from our, I would say, largely technically uh, dominated projects where we needed a little bit more of a wider focus that that potentially rolled into policy and other regulatory issues. So we had to expand our focus a bit and I encouraged Dr. Miller to come aboard. with that, I started the Environmental Energy Institute, and it's continued to grow since then. And all along, even even before the formation of the Environmental Energy Institute, we we started working with 360 Energy a long time ago. In fact, I can I can speak to to how that and when that started,
1: if you would uh, like. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward, Rup, because we have had quite a, a track record working. Very closely with yourself. We we have, we
2: have. No, it's honestly, it's 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 quite remarkable. I remember it actually really well. I had gotten a contract with the then Ontario Power Authority to develop a training program to help people better understand the process of energy management. And while coming from the Turbines and Energy Lab, we had a, a very good technical understanding of what energy management was in terms of control algorithms and understanding the thermodynamics in a building and things like that. We really didn't have much in the way of change culture or an understanding of how you actually execute changes in, in a facility. It's one thing to explain to someone how changing a boiler out will save them money. It's another thing to get them to understand what's required to make that happen and, and to get buy-in from management we were tasked with developing these courses for the province and we needed instructors and we needed course developers. And I had met Dave. I think I had seen Dave speak at an event. And so I knew who he was, but we, we didn't have a working relationship yet. I, w- I had enough money in this grant to, to get an assistant and the assistant was out at an event and she's like, Oh, I just saw this guy. He's so polished. I think he'd be great for the course. And I said, yeah what's his name and she said oh it's David Arkell I said I know that guy go get him so I remember Stephanie approached Dave and she's like oh he seemed interested he seemed interested but I don't think we can afford him I said well we'll see if we can negotiate and uh, so Dave was very generous with us understanding our sort of financial limitations of the project and he came aboard and he you know he made it real for us we had other sort of technical experts on board for different aspects lighting HVAC and but but there was no change culture, there was no overarching understanding of how billing works or anything like that. And then Dave ultimately also pulled in John Pooley at one point, so our credibility went, went way up, which was really wonderful, and it, it really knit the course together nicely. And we had four successful outings of that course, I was very proud of that, and so the province was very pleased with those outcomes, and, and you know, it. For us it helped us really get a high level understanding of where the energy management culture was at the time and that was that was some time ago that was over 10 years ago and things have come a long way and 360 energy knows that better than anybody because they've been
1: facilitating those changes so that that's sort of how things got started it, it, it actually rupert it, it was a uh, the combination of the skills on the technical side that we didn't have and the management techniques that we were encouraging customers—it was really a, a great match, and I, hence that's why we continue to work collectively because you have skill sets that we don't have, and, and vice versa. But the markets come a long way, but it still has a lot of opportunity to increase our knowledge base. So uh-huh. I'm really thankful for the opportunity that we did have, and the fact that we did meet with you guys too. I think it's—I it's, think it's uh-huh. served both of us well, and hopefully society too. Oh, yeah. No, in, in, uh,
2: honestly, Dave, I was just about to comment on that, that I'm sure you will agree that after we conducted that course and made our way sort of around the province, there was an onrush of interest in competing courses and similar movements that came about. Ah, yes. You know, and 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 I know we had sort of moved on to tackle different specific things once we fulfilled our contract requirements there but there was a just a deluge of efforts and it continues, right? We see it, yeah, you know? So initially I was bummed by that and then I recognized that it was a compliment to what we, had, what we had done. Right.
0: So you both brought up quite a few great points and I know a few of our listeners are actually industry members with great research topics that they wanna start pursuing. How does industry start working with universities?
2: Well, great question, Lissandra. I would say industry starts by ultimately, hopefully, identifying sort of the faculty members that they want to work with. You can go through your, the, the universities will have a forward-facing sort of research office. That, that's that's a good first step as well, but I, I tend to encourage companies to do a little research on their own if they can, and sometimes get, get in contact with the faculty members directly, because I, I have to say it, It's frustrating and it's challenging. And I understand the challenge on the other side. Those research offices, they have a lot of people to keep track of. So they don't always know who's doing what. And things change quickly too, right? So frankly, talking to both is good. Do your own research, but you can also talk to any university sort of research office and uh, get connected.
1: You know, I talked briefly and as we go further, we'll talk more of how there's this synergy and benefits that we as a company have attained by working cooperation from you but i'd be interested in like for other parties how does industry research partnership actually benefit both parties meaning the the industry partner that you might be working with and and for yourself for the university could you explain that of course yeah to me that
2: list is so long like where to start i'll start with the simple things that come to mind where i try to you know sometimes industry uh, isn't aware of the potential benefits of working with the university, because there are there are differences in in, in potentially collaborating with another company. And one of the first things we like to do is to try to manage expectations, because our workforce is learning all the time. A professional workforce is too, but there's they have a certain level of maturity, both in terms of what their learning curve and, and frankly, even their age maturity, it, it, it helps. We have students who are dealing with everything. And so that's our workforce. And so it's unrealistic to put sort of around the clock, you know, demands on students who have a lot of other commitments and uh, we can't pay them the same way that that employers pay their employees. So, you know, there are there are limitations. And so we wanna really manage those expectations early on. But once we've done that, I point out some of the things that that I think are fantastic. One of the things that we can do is sometimes universities have in, an, in almost a very cliche way, we'll have very specialized equipment or very specialized facilities that it doesn't make sense for a company to own. It just doesn't make sense for them or even to try to rent and then try to understand how to operate. A university will have very specialized testing facilities, very specialized areas for experiments and then and the specialized people to actually work those. So that that's a simple way for a company to go in low risk and enter a collaboration with with the university and see benefits from that. Of course, on the other side of that, for the university, it's like a fee for service thing. It's always great, obviously everyone needs revenue and it gets students experience with dealing with real deadlines and being connected to employers. And those are sort of some of the least immersive collaborations that I can think of. But, but the ones that we tend to go for are where we really want to look at a problem that industry is having, that industry may not have the time or the spatial bandwidth to deal with. So what they can do is if they are interested, university can come in and and you need a lot of time to get to know each other and get to know each other's challenges. And then those problems can be sort of offloaded to the university where they can be worked on in a way that the time scale is different, but the level of detail and sort of technical reproach is is different. And it allows the industry to continue with, with operations, right? And that way the students really get to see what's required for sort of commercial interests. And they also get to understand sort of what's what's important in terms of in terms of timelines. And that their work it, it impacts other people as well. It's not just a student working alone in a lab, and and if, if, the, if their work ethic falls off, then their thesis is going to be late. Their you know, the consequences of of, of their
1: actions ha- have have wide implications, sort of thing. I it was brought to my attention. There's a book called The Smartest Places in the World, and it talked about how actually how manufacturing our sectors throughout North America, the Rust Belt in North America. A lot of businesses vacated went to asia and things of that nature and it's been re-stimulated because what's happened is industry is working in cooperation with academia to come up with new ideas and how to implement things and i think that mix that collaboration is so important because as you just described i think a lot of industry they don't have the, the resources uh, available or the focus that universities and, and academia has, they could use and capitalize on. So there's a lot of benefits to society, their company, and to the region that they might be in. And and so it, it's, it's certainly a, a really worthy exercise. What are some of the challenges with industry and research partnerships?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the number one is unrealistic expectations on, on both sides. And and it's it's driven by ignorance and it's it's unfortunate. And that's why you really need to work on sometimes very small projects in the beginning if it's possible, and if not, just take time to get to know each other. Maybe you met at an event, uh, you know, visits to facilities, tours, long discussions about what the problems are or what potential collaboration opportunities are. And then full disclosure, full transparent disclosure on what some of the risks would be in the collaboration. That's the number one thing because it 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 goes both ways. I talked about industries, you know, not understanding that you know universities tend to be slower at times. There can be challenges in terms of availability of a workforce or lack of continuity in the workforce. So those are risks. But there's also a lack of understanding on the academic side that I think is actually potentially worse and probably more rampant. And this notion that Industry is available at any time to meet. Industry is available to disclose all data that's necessary to solve the problem at any time. Industry can stop the operations so we can get a better look at, at what's happening. Right? You know, the academic side doesn't necessarily, you know, depending on how experienced they are in working with the industry, they don't appreciate that, again, it's a business that's running and it it can't stop for these things. Now, it it can when it's, when it's deemed necessary and when it's deemed appropriate. And, you know, academics that have lived in a lab, they have complete control over their experiment, right? So they can stop a process, start a process. But, but again, that's why I really thrive on on the industry collaboration because it's such a spectacular challenge to have all these moving parts and to be useful to each other, it's not a given. It's not a given and it requires constant attention. And and that's, that's the other thing too, is that it's really critical. You want to have regular contact. So again, that we can just make sure that expectations are managed. So, so there's no surprises, right? But there's so much that can come from it. It's so exciting. I just wanted to add to the last question we had was that I think one of the other valuable things about that collaboration is you do have people coming from different worlds and so what tends to happen is you'll get strange questions. And the strange questions are, are fantastic because it, it causes a, a wind energy operator, you know, we say, well, wh- why would you guys wait till the end of the month to collect that data? Why would you be collecting it on the hour? And they're like, no, that's, that's how we've always done it. I, I, I don't know why. Right. Or similarly, why are we looking at certain data sets that, that ultimately are meaningless and they have nothing to do with the operation of the of the facility. Right. That there might be some, some variable that has no importance to the facility, but we just assume because we're academics, we better look at all the data. And then you've got the industry partner there. It's like, actually, we only deal with these three variables. This is all that matters to our operation. So those kind of things are uh, super valuable and they can't really be taught in the classroom.
1: Can you give some guidance on how industry can connect with the academia partner, whether it's yourself or other institutions?
2: Yeah, again, I think most most of our contacts generally come through direct emails. I, I would say probably easily probably eighty percent of our of our contacts come from direct emails that have people have seen a publication that we've authored or or they've seen a press release on some study that's ongoing, or we've spoken at an event. And they will they will reach out by email, and so that I think that's probably the most useful because we're a smaller institution, and I, I have a good relationship with our administration. But day to day, I'm still <laughs> amazed sometimes they they don't know what I'm doing. And and in fairness, they can't. And it's sort of my own arrogance that I'm like, how do they not understand that I've moved on to this? And then I realize it was something I decided for myself two days ago that I was now pursuing, <laughs> and they're expected to understand that. So. So it's really always better if you can reach out to the individual. And, uh, you know, that an email seems to be the best. I do know that actually I'm getting more and more things on LinkedIn, something that I've been admittedly slow to engage because it wasn't really a place for academics and I try to make myself the industrial academic, but there's only so many platforms you can maintain
1: the academics. It's like continuous journey of learning, right? That's the whole thing. It is.
0: 360 Energy and the University of Windsor have been involved in many partnership projects together. I thought it would be insightful to other industry and academia to get into the collaborations you both have done together so far. Could you start off by talking about your collaboration with the ISO for the grid innovation project called Powering Greenhouse Sector Expansion with Distributed Energy Resource Solutions?
2: Yeah, this one, honestly, for me, I think it kind of defines the evolution of our collaborative relationship that one of the one of the really nice things about having a, a long collaboration like we've had with 360 energy is that we we know very well what one another are doing and a lot of that is because we talk regularly so either that's because we have an ongoing project or just our relationship we can check in anytime. So we saw a funding opportunity and and a need. We've been working with greenhouses on our own for quite a few years in sort of the uh, internal energy modeling and external energy system provision modeling for greenhouses. And uh, we also knew that uh, 360 Energy was independently on their own also working with greenhouses where they were really helping clients better understand how to manage their energy and giving them options for different energy solutions. So the call came along and it was look at we are power constrained and as the grid operator ISO said can somebody develop some options for us to entertain while we're power constrained and so we provided a proposal and said look at we can go through a develop a parameterized model based on very meticulous characterizations of energy demand and then subsequent design options so that people can look at a desk design level, what the options might be. If you want to do a good job on that, you need to really carefully understand how billing works and how market pricing works. That is something that we do not have in-house at all and is something that I knew was 360's bread and butter. And I knew it was our secret weapon coming to the table, to be honest, in terms of our proposal. And I knew that no one else would have that. As long as we had 360, nobody else would have that. And it's it's just proven to be even more true as we work through this project. And honestly, the business of you being embedded there, Lysandra, for your internship, it, it just could not have worked out any better. I saw you getting fantastic learning opportunities. It was bringing immense credibility to our project. That was beyond anything I think ISO expected. You know, I can't speak for them, but I mean, I got the sense that they were pleased with the level of detail
1: uh, we were able to provide and I'm proud of our ongoing progress in, in that project. For the greenhouse industry, as you had mentioned, we, you know, that's half of our business that we focus on and it appeared because of the massive growth that a lot of customers hadn't thought of or didn't understand the impact of grid or grid restrictions and they they tended to rely not knowing it or they may rely on consulting in the netherlands but the netherlands didn't have the in-house experience or knowledge of the actual marketplace and the marketplace players so when when you brought that to our attention it actually filled a gap or a hole that customers were asking us on what they could do. So it was kind of you know you talked about the win for you it was actually to me a win not only for the customers because now uh, we have a number of our customers that are involved in this pod and they're continually updated on what this means and what they should be thinking about down the road which is invaluable for any customer like not many people get that insight or understand and, and describe in detail but it also allows us to look at other jurisdictions in in the greenhouse sector throughout North America because I believe and expect there will be same challenges or issues that might happen where there may be grid restrictions or issues. But the learning that is done and being achieved by working collaboration with the university has been invaluable for us to approach and bring that to the marketplace. I do want to reinforce what you said to. Ru- the, the idea of us working with the university, and specifically students that are knowledgeable and have experience in that sector and working with us, I, I'm telling people in our company, this is the model of the future. This is what we need to do in the future is finding new employees who, who have that knowledge base and have that passion. And so I, I would say it's been a, a really favorable situation for us to be involved in and I know it's going to serve everyone here in the call the university certainly 360 energy our clients but I, I, I hope and believe it's going to do the same thing for for Lysandra for her uh, future career as well but I'd be interested Lysandra from your perspective being a student what you've thought from this
0: process yeah, I mean, I, I've been working on this project for now almost two years and I think throughout the project timeline, I've really gotten to think about how this project couldn't have been done internally at the ISO and received the same amount of results that we have just for the sole fact that a lot of times, I believe a lot more people are open to answering questions to academia rather than companies and then a lot of times people don't want to give academia at the time of the day, but they would give an industry member at the time of the day. So I think we've created such a great collab, even with you know Hydro One and OGVG and ourselves and so many other people. I think I think on this project already we've probably had 40 different hands touch it, and I don't think many people can say that about about a project in that this kind of timeline with this kind of result. So I I do think that's probably been my favorite part of this project is getting so many inputs and actually seeing that you know, the results we're saying and the results we're giving are realistic and there's so much more work that can be done with the work that we've already started.
1: I wanted to pick up on what you said because the networking, you are absolutely right. The people that we have met through this process, many of these people we didn't know of before. So, wow, it's, it's, that has been helpful and will be helpful for us and for our customers as well. So it's really a, a great point.
0: Yeah, and I would want to say like even going to those greenhouses and visiting just pe- like greenhouses, the owners and the growers were so open to explaining to me because I am a student that I feel like I really got the full picture. Whereas, you know, when someone more experienced comes in, maybe they don't feel like they can ask those questions and they they don't get the full picture of how the greenhouse is operating. So I, I do think it, it's been really, I've been on the the beneficial side of both ends for sure.
1: And and I'll say this too, Rup, I don't know uh, if I've conveyed this to you directly, but actually uh, it's actually enhanced and we've developed new products because of this whole exposure as well. So for listeners, I I just wanna make sure they understand that there's a lot of upside to participating with players like yourself uh, that have that exposure and experience for sure. Whereas sometimes I think some collaborations
2: just go by the wayside with some folks And they, they don't see how to pick it up and and capitalize on it. And so you guys do that really well. The, the, the other thing, and and I think other people could take, you know, and again, I understand that's your competitive advantage, (laughs) but, but I, I think that's fascinating and I look at it all the time and I think about it because there's, there's even room for it in our world to do more of that. But the other thing I just want to say before we pass, pass this point was that I Sometimes large organizations just because of the inertia and they often they offer the regulatory side of things, they can come off a little bit vilified. And, and I don't want that to be the case here. As we talk about our friends at ISO, right? We want to remind everybody that, you know, Lysander mentioned that ISO may not have been able to achieve the same outcomes on their own. I, I think they were well aware of that. And, and, and that's why they had the foresight to create this call and said, let's go out and find the people who are doing this kind of work and, and let them get in there and, and we'll develop a contract so that they can educate us. So I think we do need to give them some credit, not only for providing the funding for the project, but really sort of maintaining the priorities of what is important to them as an organization and, and being sure that they can be informed as
1: they continue to evolve their service to the sector. So I, I know there's a number of things we're going to talk about here to reinforce what you're saying about the the uh, value of being associated with a partner like the ISO as well. Oh, no, this brings me
0: to my next ask. Could you talk about your collaboration with modeling the grid impact of long-haul electric vehicles in Ontario?
2: Yeah, happily. That's an exciting one because it's quite new and moving quickly. It's such an exciting place to be. So it's actually connected to the former project that we just discussed. So. That, that same ISO contribution from the Grid Innovation Fund was eligible to be, to be matched by national funding from MITACS. So we developed a proposal in, in, in collaboration and discussion with the ISO mentioned that truly electric big rigs, as massive as they can be, represent distributed energy resources. And so we said ultimately these, these are a peripheral but connected part of our original project. And so ISO said, sure. And uh, MITAC saw it as a competitive and, and useful innovative study. So they provided us some funding, which was wonderful. And again, in order to do this properly, you really need to understand how energy is consumed at the customer level. And no one understands that better than 360. They've been doing it for as long as they've been in existence. Our goal was to see If you snapped your finger today and you were able to turn every diesel truck, every diesel transport truck in Ontario to a fully electric truck, what would the impact be on the grid? The premise of the the project was to see what will it look like to the province if these trucks become fully electrified. There of course is another side to that, right? And that is that while these could be assets that can be moving around and actually backfeeding the grid with different services at different times that most people when they think of that say, oh, economically, I don't think that'll work. But we think otherwise that at least it's worth looking at. There could be scenarios where it actually is valuable. We all know 360 more than anybody that very strange things can happen on the billing side because of certain rules and policies and market situations where it could be convenient or economically beneficial to, to have these kind of strategic services provided by a portable massive battery. And and for us to really drill down into those opportunities, you need a detailed case study. We've managed to secure one of the largest growers in the in the region as a major partner and and we're looking at major retailers on the other end of that trip. So we're looking at the logistics, you know, when and where the trucks go, how many trucks, how long do they sit, what are they hauling for how long? And and then we're looking at the energy profiles of the sort of source you know the grower source down to the retailer and where are the opportunities for energy trading as they go along in a sort of internet of things connected world
1: it's it it really is a a very exciting project which I, i i'm not convinced many consumers or society recognize what this would mean and how it could help or positively impact society. And as you said, Rube, I think many customers get locked and don't move because they don't actually understand the economics or the impact. And so we're excited to be involved just to to see that and, and to figure out if there's challenges or obstacles, w- what can be done by the uh, customer in this. And I, I was just speaking to one of our large customers, conveying to them that, boy, that have you factored how much... You're going to be charging the frequency, what it's going to cost. So uh, the fact that you're going down this pathway, I think we'll be able to share a, a lot of knowledge and understanding how the marketplace can manifest and, and encourage this transition quicker. I, I, I do believe that's there's going to be some real uh, upside by having this knowledge and being exposed to this for the marketplace as well.
2: Yeah, that's encouraging, Dave. That's really interesting, fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to hear that you're, you're, one of your clients has, has made that commitment. That's a That's a massive commitment, and it's a leap. Right. Let's be clear. That's a leap, but, but that's, that's great. And I think it reminded me of a point I wanted to make, even in our earlier discussions was that, you know, these collaborations and these studies, people will have, you know, notions that, well, there's going to be a lot of barriers. And when you guys finish this feasibility study or whatever you want to call it, you're going to see that there's a ton of obstacles. Right. And, and oftentimes they're right, but the advantage is they're, they're quantified and then we can say, Oh, this is what's in the way of this moving forward. Is it a policy piece? Is it just the economics aren't there? Or is it the technology isn't there yet? But we've identified it. And then what people fail to understand is that if it's progressive enough and, if, and if, it's, if it's important enough, government can be made aware and can pull the project forward. And that's happened before. We've done this before with other collaborations and people don't understand that. And I mean, in many ways, like it, or not like it, the Ontario wind industry was pulled forward by the government. And it's very controversial, but say what you will, it advanced wind across Canada. It advanced wind globally in many respects. People don't understand the impact that that had. So, again, when you start one of these studies, you're really beginning to not just identify that, oh, there'll be some problems, but what they are and then and, and what the potential workarounds are. Like That's the part that's exciting to me.
0: Lastly, Dave, I know you wanted to touch on energy modeling as well.
1: Yeah, I, I'll I'll start this off, Arup. I um anything anytime we work with customers, the the key point is that we we actually have to have data, and we have to have understand how they use energy, and and then what drives their energy usage, and what can they do, what can't they do, and if you could to share if what you can share on yeah. the modeling on energy and how that is being used to Perhaps help change or assist in the transition of this new uh, world that we're going to live in going forward.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I'm glad you asked about it. Yeah, I'd say a couple of years ago, I think, you know, we started this initiative we called the Climate Led Energy Evolution Network, which spells out CLEAN 2040. And uh, the notion being that can we map what could happen to, and we just picked, you know, you can go with the system operator level. You could go at the utility level, you could go at the business or household level. We kind of we started with and focused on the utility level because it, it sort of is where all the action happens ultimately. You've got stakeholders above you, you've got stakeholders below you, you've got stakeholders out to the side of you. So that seemed to be sort of the place to focus. And so this Clean2040 effort was, we tried to build a network of stakeholders that included universities, industry partners, like 360 Energy, a number of utilities, and we built a model up that was really, in in its essence, a very simple thing. It was really a visualization of a utilities load curve. That's ultimately all it was. And I was really proud of how simple it was. Now it was complex in its function because it had to pay attention to a lot of things, but ultimately we were visualizing a utilities load curve. And then great research by our, our graduate student at the time um, allowed us to basically attach a bunch of sliders and dials to say, okay, here's this utility's load curve, and it's obviously it's based on all of their real customer data, which I can tell you was no small task. There's obviously privacy concerns, and just the for the utility, it's a lot of work to pull that data together. So there was a lot of persuasion required, but we had some fantastic utility partners, uh, and I and I will name names because they've been really really good to us. Toronto Hydro. And, uh, and NWIN and Essex Energy were particularly good to us. And so with their data, we were able to build up modifiers. So what happens when you plug an EV in to this substation or ultimately this transformer at this street level propagating up to this substation? How does that affect their load curve? right? And we would use more aggregate descriptors than that because we couldn't get that granular uh, at this level. but. Effectively, what we could do is 20% of your city is now plugging in EVs. Here's your new load curve. 60% of your city, 60% of your commercial operations now have solar panels on the roof. Here's your new load curve. Right. Well, what happens to to you, the FASCO, if you know you bring on uh, a whole bunch of cogen or you bring on this, or so? It, it was neat and what, what we were, you know, working on most recently is trying to build in environmental factors in that as well, because that, that is where a lot of things are going, right? Well, how does your carbon footprint change if you make this move from solar to, or from cogen to solar or whatever it is, you know, where that's possible. Right. So that, that was kind of what the essence of the modeling effort was. and So it was, it was credible, peer
1: reviewed, credible sort of work. And so this modeling, when you put in front of customers and you do what if analysis, they would start going, they would they would open the door on, wow, you mean, so that would, things would be real. And that would mean that they could actually manage energy. And that's, I think it's kind of the future of, of what's going on. So it, it was a, a great exercise to be uh, involved in.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm glad to hear that, Dave. I mean, it makes it it makes it real for us to, to hear that that you see value in that kind of work.
0: Well, quite a few excellent projects between 360 Energy and the University of Windsor. Dave, anything to conclude this off?
1: As we go through this, and actually, I, I haven't had a chance to reflect that as we go through, I'm like, wow. I'm like, I'm, there's a lot of stuff that we've done, and we're still not done, uh, no. Rup, I think you would, no. you would admit. But uh, I feel I'm very grateful and very fortunate to believe that we have. We're working in cooperation with you guys. And I look forward to work with yourselves and, and other institutions going forward. Cause I, I think we're going to have to do things right and do it faster than we've ever done before there's a resource that we can or should be using not us only ourselves. Although I'd like to keep it to ourselves, but the rest of the world should be aware and work with the universities as well. So.
2: And if I could, I want to offer one more thing that I think is super valuable. I don't know how I've missed to this point about the value of the collaboration, sort of some of the ultimate outcomes are are really, really, really helpful that I missed. And that is that if we've done our job right and we've had a good industry collaboration and that industry has benefited from the collaboration and and maybe their bottom line has benefited sufficiently, they will hire our student. Right now we have a direct in at that company and they they are in a position now that new employee understands the university system better than anyone else because they've come from it so recently and they've got the direct contacts and then the industry has taken on somebody now who has that skill set in house right who if something gets beyond them they can go back to the university for more support so for us that's really represents true success if we see our graduates going out to work with our industrial partners we obviously the graduate is a direct direct immediate beneficiary of that. We benefit from that because now, you know, we have this dendritic network of family out in, in industry. And that's that's where I hope things go for us. And, and that to me represents real success. And we're we're seeing small examples of that now. It takes a long time. And the fact that 360 has has engaged our interns and has looked at our our graduates, we're, we're really grateful
1: for. So thanks very much for the time today. Rupa really appreciate your time. Uh, I think we covered a lot of material stuff I had forgotten and Lysandra thank you for bringing this all together. As as Rupa said perfect example of someone who's come from your school but is so valuable in the work that we're doing and the messaging we're trying to get across to the marketplace. This is a real life example with Lysandra taking on this work so thank you everyone for this.
0: Thank you and have a great
1: week. Yeah you too guys see you
0: That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360Energy, Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360Energy, Inc. See you next week.